Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for bringing us here today and for allowing us the privilege of being in your presence. Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us to dwell in the light of your presence today. You know what's going on in our li lives and our hearts, Lord, and I just pray that you will be glorified by everything that I share today and that each person will be able to know and understand better the love that you have for them through this presentation. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, the spiritual roots of depression and anxiety. Um, let me just share a little bit about myself. I grew up in an Adventist home, so I went to church every week. Growing up, I, I had a lot of things that were great. We lived out in the country. I had three sisters. We all played out in the woods all the time. I went to a small school. There were a lot of things that I had going for me, but there were also some things that didn't go so well in my life. There were a lot of abuse issues and things that were very painful to me. You can hear about some of those on a different presentation that I've done that's on Audioverse, um, where I talked about the things that I've been through and how the Lord has helped me through some of those things. Um, it's called Beauty for Ashes. But I want to talk today especially about depression and anxiety and my struggles with those things personally and how I found that the Lord has really set me free. You see, what I was going through as a result of some of the things that had happened to me was even though during the day I would be this happy person who, you know, made a lot of jokes and had a lot of fun and I was, you know, always trying to be the life of the party. I was a little nerdy, so that didn't work out so well, but, you know, that was what I tried to be. I really wanted to be popular. I really wanted to have friends. So the struggles that I had, I kept inside. I didn't want to tell people what I was going through. But at night, I would have nightmares, and I struggled with major depressive disorder. Now, I didn't talk to a counselor. We didn't have a counselor. You know, I wouldn't have ever asked for, for going to talk to somebody about something anyway. In my mind, you just keep those things inside and try to put on a happy face. And isn't that what a Christian is supposed to do, right? But that didn't work so well for me. And... Um, when I, when I was 15, I was attacked by a neighbor of my parents, and he, he grabbed me and kissed me and started dragging me into his house. This is this old guy who's like 300 pounds, and I was probably, you know, 20 pounds less than I am now. Maybe I was 110, 115 pounds. And this guy grabs me and tries to drag me in his house, and there's no one around even to hear me scream. My mom had just sent me over to his house to invite him over for supper, so I was terrified. And when I came out of that experience, now the Lord delivered me. I hung onto the door frames and I pleaded for this guy to let me go and finally he did and I praise God that he helped me, but I didn't praise him then. What happened when I walked away from that house was I just was so angry at God. I said, here you are. You never do anything to take care of me. I always have to fight off things and take care of myself. Obviously, you're not the kind of father who would take care of his daughter, so I'm gonna take care of myself. And this was my prayer to God. I said, I'm through with the stupid trust God thing because you don't take care of me. So I'll take care of myself. I'm not going to go drink or do drugs. I was honest with God. This is, this is what I prayed. I'm not going to go drink and do drugs and do crazy things with my life, but I'm not going to trust you because you don't take care of me. And that conversation with God launched me into a very different way of living because I felt that I needed to protect myself. I started having some strong problems with anxiety that just built over the years. Over the next couple of years, as I turned 16, 17, I went away to academy, and it was a wonderful school. I went to Washita Hills Academy. It really introduced me to the gospel for the first time, and I surrendered my life to Christ. And in many ways, that was a wonderful time in my life, a brand new Christian. But 
in other ways, the struggles weren't going away. No matter how much I prayed and how much I spent my devotional time with God every day, at night, I would be in fear. I was afraid that someone would break into the room, somebody would crawl through the window and drag me out and kidnap me and rape me. Now, I was living in a dorm with alarms on the windows and my roommate is on the bunk right above me. It's not like anybody is gonna rip me out of the window without anybody finding out, right? But you can't reason with fear like that. So every night I would sleep in jeans, I would sleep fully clothed, everything except for my shoes, and I would lie there in bed at night and I would worry, what if they get me and I don't have my shoes on and who knows how far they're gonna make me walk? You know, it was insane and I knew it, so I didn't tell anybody what I was struggling with. I'd just laugh, yeah, I'm a jeans girl, that's why I sleep in jeans. But down inside I lived in fear. It was a terrible feeling and it got worse and worse as time went on. Eventually, I got to where if a man walked behind me, I would have a panic attack. My throat would close up and I wouldn't be able to breathe. So I would compromise by always kind of trying to keep my back against a wall. Now, if it was a guy who was my age that I knew, I was comfortable with that. That wasn't the kind of guy who had hurt me or endangered me. So instead, I would only freak out if there was some guy who was maybe 20 years older than me or significantly bigger than me, then that would be what would scare me. But if I, you know, I feel a man walking past behind me and my throat might stiffen up, I look back and I see, oh, that's just my friend. <sighs> I'd relax. I was fine. And I convinced myself that I was fine. This is normal. This is just my little weird thing that I do, and I'm fine. And I'd stand in line waiting to have lunch. You know, I'd just lean against chairs along the table or something so nobody would walk behind me, and everything was fine. I had all these great ways to cope. But it was still a prison and it was getting worse and worse. And I want you to know that that's not the way it is anymore. I don't know what you're struggling with, but I want you to know that even when you've given your life to Christ and you're still struggling with something and you've prayed and prayed and it hasn't gone away, don't give up. You need to understand how the gospel applies to your life and that will set you free. The truth sets you free. I don't struggle with those anxiety problems anymore. I don't struggle with major depression anymore. Sometimes a little, you know, blue mood will hit me or I'll have frustration in dealing with my house, but it's not like the way that I used to live. So I want you to know, depression and anxiety are temptations. They are situations that make us more vulnerable to temptations of the devil to think in unbiblical ways. But that doesn't mean that because you struggle with depression or anxiety that you're not converted, that God is not working in your life or anything like that. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus was tempted too, right? Jesus struggled with depression when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was facing darkness. I want you to know right off, what this seminar is not, this seminar is not an accusation that depression is a sin, or even always necessarily a result of a person's sin, because it's not. Sometimes, you know, some people ride the waves of hormones and they just have a certain day that they are more depressed than other days and they know it, you know. Other people, they have something that's going on in their brain and you can call it a chemical imbalance. There's really no scientific test that can be done to say, oh, this person has a chemical imbalance. But um, if a doctor gives you a medication and it seems to fix it, they say, oh, see, there was a chemical imbalance. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that because often, the chemical imbalances in our minds come as a result of imbalances in our lives and ways we're not appropriating the gospel. So we, by the way that we think, can create a mindset that, that contributes to things like ulcers, right? Why could they not also contribute to things like depression? The way that we think can change whether we're depressed or not. 
And you know, for all the people that I know sometimes just struggle with depression and then they go to the doctor and find out, oh, I'm really low on B12. They take B12 and their, their spirit's sore. I'm not saying there's nothing physical going on. What this seminar is talking about is what's going on spiritually that's often at the root. Because I can, I've known many people who in 10 minutes of thinking wrong thoughts can send themselves spiraling into a depression that'll take them weeks to get out of. So what we're gonna talk about today is how the gospel applies to depression and anxiety. Remember, they're temptations. That's an important thing. It's not a sin to feel depressed or anxious. It's a temptation not to trust God that he is who he says he is. Anxiety is a temptation to try to take control because we don't trust God to do what he says he can do. Depression is often a temptation to believe that God can't do anything good with somebody like me. And both of those are lies of the devil, right? Now, the Lord sometimes delivers a person by setting them free from the feeling. Other times he delivers us by teaching us how to depend on him in the darkness instead of in the light, right? Some people overcome smoking, they throw away all their cigarettes and they're never tempted again, right? They put a cigarette in their mouths and this is awful and they never smoke again. Other people continue battling with it every day of their lives, right? So just because you struggle with depression, don't be discouraged. The devil is the one who sends messages of discouragement. God will never send you a message of discouragement. If a message comes to your mind saying, you are always failing at everything. You don't have to wonder where did that come from. It's not a message from God saying, you messed up again. You're always messing up again. That's how you are. That'll never come from Jesus. He's the one who says, neither do I condemn you. Let's get up. I'll help you up. Let's keep going. Don't look back. I am with you. All right? So the first thing you need to understand is God does allow depression sometimes or anxiety. It's a temptation. And the second thing is God is not going to send you a message of discouragement. Now, depression and anxiety are major problems in America, in the world, and it, but in Western culture particularly. I'm just going to give you some statistics that are just about America. About 9.5% of the U.S. Population, population age 18 and older have a depressive disorder. That means at any given moment they have a depressive disorder. That's almost 10%. Unipolar, that means not bipolar, major depression is the leading cause of disability in the United States. Not car accidents, not alcohol, but major depression is what keeps people sitting at home. The average age of onset of major depression 50 years ago was 29. Recent statistics indicate average age of onset at, what is it? 14. 14. Is that terrifying to you? It should be. Now, we can blame you know, chemistry and chemical imbalances and things like that. I think what happens a lot of the time is that people are diagnosed earlier, but there's also a lot of divorce, a lot of abuse, things like that that are escalating as we get into a culture that's more and more super-sexualized and more and more um, disconnected from one another. We have huge shallow networks instead of deep friendships. I'm going to be talking about that in my final seminar today, how to have healthy healing friendships. Um, but lastly, depressive disorders often co-occur with anxiety disorders and substance abuse. I'm going to show you why that is in a minute. Now, I have more depressing statistics. Approximately 19.1 million American adults ages 18 to 54, or about 13.3% of people in this age group in any given year, have an anxiety disorder. 19.1 million in any given year. Anxiety disorders frequently co-occur with depressive disorders, eating disorders, or substance abuse. 
and anxiety disorders are the most common mental health problem in the United States today. Why is this? A hundred years ago, there was certainly depression and there was certainly anxiety. But I do think that things are dramatically increasing as we come toward the end of time because people are thinking less and less biblically about life. Here is, in a nutshell, a simple diagram that tells you about how God wants us to live. He wants us to look unto Jesus. So you have that arrow in the middle going straight up, looking unto Jesus. The Christian is right at the bottom of that arrow, looking straight upward toward Jesus. When you're looking unto Jesus, in general, what happens in all the rest of your life is everything else becomes ordered. It's a gradual process. It's called sanctification. But God brings about healing in all other areas of your life as you're focused on Christ, as you're having a deep devotional time with him every day. He keeps showing you new areas of your life where the gospel applies. Haven't you ever experienced this? I'm sure you have. When you, you, know, you have your devotional time, and when you're praying, the Lord says, you know, the way that you handled that situation with your teacher the other day, that, that wasn't loving and kind. You're like, wow, okay, what should I do? You need to go apologize. You need to make things right. Okay, you do that. The next day, you come to the Lord, and as you're praying, he says, you know, the way that you've been treating this person is not respectful. And you go, wow, but that was there yesterday. Yeah, but you weren't ready to deal with it yesterday, right? So God works step by step to bring your life into harmony with his word as you look to Jesus. That seems simplistic, but it really is that way. What happens when you're not looking to Jesus? Because if I were the devil, I would waste all my energy trying to get you not to look to Jesus. Push you off the trail, right? So here's what the devil does. He grabs a hold of you and tries to pull you off the narrow way on this side. Maybe it's the anxiety side. He'll try to pull you off into being worried, into trying so hard to please God, trying so hard to make him happy with the way that you do so well. You do so much for him. You spend extra time in prayer with him. You try so hard on your schoolwork for his glory. You try to be nice to everybody. What happens when you're not looking to Jesus and you start looking to self? You'll have that pressure more and more and more. You're never good enough. Got to do more, get a little bit better, then you'll feel good. And finally, when the devil can't pull you off onto that side anymore, you'll give up. You'll go, I can't do it all. I just hate it. I hate having to spend an hour and a half with God or else feel guilty all day long. And you throw it all out. Then the devil lets go of you and he gives you a shove. You fall off the other side into the depression side where you just go, I can't. I can't ever do it. I can't ever do enough to please God, to please my mom, to get enough grades, to do well in everything. I failed again. I stayed up too late. Whatever it is, the devil will send you into the depression side. This is why depression and anxiety go together, because they're two different forms of looking to self instead of to Christ. Here's what depression does. These are just a few of the things that you may observe in your life if you're struggling with depression. Bulimia. Bulimia is in the family of depressive kind of situations. When a person wants to escape into food, then they just gorge themselves and then throw it up. That, that sticks more with when you can't, can't take it anymore, you just go do what you feel like doing, right? It's an escape mechanism. Depression usually has escape kind of sinful behaviors on its side. Idolatrous relationships. When you can't connect with God and your heart is so thirsty, but when you pray, you just feel like he's so far away, you're very prone to go out and look for somebody to make you feel more attractive and loved and worthwhile. 
fantasy. A lot of people fall into fantasy. Masturbation would fit in there too. Pornography, self-mutilation. When you just want to escape, you maybe want to feel something. You want to feel some kind of pain. Or you want to do something to distract yourself from the emotional pain that's going on. Self-mutilation is getting to be a huge problem because people more and more are falling into this. They hear from their friend, oh, that's a cool thing to do. And they try that. Homosexuality sometimes ends up being the same thing. I can get accepted into this group. I'm not saying that everyone just chooses homosexuality voluntarily. I don't think that's what happens most of the time. But um, sometimes it's a way to get into an in crowd. Post-traumatic stress disorder, when you just feel I can't handle it anymore, sometimes that will be a result of going through a trauma in the past where you just, you know, you gave up. You couldn't fight this person off anymore. And that will be a pattern when you face overload. Feeling worthless, feeling unlovable. These are direct lies of the devil. Are you worthless, according to the Bible? You are loved with an everlasting love. Are you unlovable, according to the Bible? No, but these things lie at the root of depression. Nobody loves me, and I'm worthless. They're direct lies of Satan against what God says in his word about how loved you are and how much you're worth. And these things underlie depression. God's not going to do anything with somebody as messed up as me. Maybe he even can't, right? Those are the underlying lies that the devil will feed you. What about anxiety? You see, on the depression side, these are forms of escapism instead of dealing with the root sin issue of self-focus. I'm going to go into something else, you know? It may be movies, it may be music, it may be sex, it may be food. doesn't matter. Whatever it is you go to to find some relief from your pain, instead of going to Christ, that will be something that's in this, this side, depression and escape. On the anxiety side, what do you have? Things like anorexia. Anorexia is when you try to super control. You want to be in control, and so you use food to do it. And then you may swing back and forth between anorexia and bulimia. No, I, I ate too much. I went ahead and ate all those Twinkies or whatever, now I'm going to feel terrible and just lash myself emotionally for days. You know what underlies anxiety? Often it's a feeling that if I just do something, I can supplement the sacrifice of Christ. Because you see, the blood of Jesus isn't enough to cleanse me from that food that I ate or that trash that I watched or that relationship that I fell into. The blood of Jesus isn't enough. I prayed and I confessed, but when I got up from my knees, I still felt bad. So now I'll go out there and do something to supplement the sacrifice of Christ and earn his favor again. Can you see the lie that's at the, at the heart of that? That the blood of Jesus isn't enough to cover your sins. You've got to do something to supplement. It's a lie. But we often never even identify that lie, and so we go on finding a multitude of things to try to base our sense of worth on. So control issues come in on the anorexia and anxiety side. Control issues may be the way you handle relationships, the way you let people come thus far but no farther. Or maybe you just need people and you demand that they be in your space and that they be a part of your life constantly, and if they don't, you manipulate them. It doesn't matter. They're all in the same kind of um, family where you manipulate people to make you happy. Instead of having relationships with people in which you love them, you use them to supplement your sense of identity or worth or lovability. Anxiety also leads to legalistic perfectionism sometimes. Or phobias, anxiety attacks. These are ways that we think we have to do what only God can do. If I try hard enough to be in control, maybe I can make sure that nobody ever hurts me. 
You see, that's something that falls on this side of where you're trying to be God. Instead of letting God be God, you try to be God. The anxiety side, if you think of it this way, it may make the most sense to you. The anxiety side is where you think that you are good enough without God. It's pride, really. It's self-reliance, which the world tells you is such a great thing. You've got to be self-reliant. But the Bible says you've got to rely on God and realize you're human. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop that drunk driver coming towards you on the other side of the road from veering over into your lane and hitting you. And to try to continually be in control of everything in your life is going to stress you out. So that's what is on this side, a lot of stress, fear of abandonment. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder is also on this side where a person will feel they have to control the situation because they weren't able to control it in the past. Obsessive compulsive disorder, feeling that we can earn love or worth. On this side, strangely enough, some people who are on the sin side to leaning toward anxiety may not feel bad. They may feel great because they feel that they are doing so well at successfully controlling their lives. They get good grades. They look nice. They're popular. They have a good boyfriend or girlfriend who looks wonderful and makes them feel good. And maybe they feel good about their devotional time. They have half an hour with God every day, and they pray and thank Him for the nice day and pray for Grandma and ask for help on that test, and then they're done. Their relationship with God is shallow, but it feels great because they've got their life going. They've got the steering wheel, and the steering is going great. They don't need God to steer their lives, and they may not even realize there's a problem. The Pharisees were on this side. You would have never called them anxiety-ridden necessarily, but they felt self-confident, and Jesus called that pride. On the depression side is the side where you think, I'm not worth anything to God. So, so you see, on the anxiety side, you feel like, I'm actually worth a lot, or I'm actually able to control, or I'm a pretty successful person if I keep trying hard. But on the depression side, you just fling your hands in the air and go falling off into the abyss. I can't do it. I can't do everything. Nobody's going to love me anyway. I'll never do it right. I wish I were dead. I'm sure some of you have had those thoughts go through your minds. But I don't know exactly what lies the devil tells you. I just know that he tells you lies. But as you sit down and you spend time with God, you take a journal or a piece of paper and you say, Lord, what are the lies that the devil is telling me? And the Lord will bring them to your mind, the things that come into your mind when you're down. How does the devil start kicking you? You never do it right. You're never good enough. You're so stupid. You're so ugly. Whatever it is the devil tells you, realize that those things are lies, but you'll never overcome them by trying hard, by stepping onto this anxiety inside and saying, if I just throw myself into this, I can do it. You see, I used to tell myself, I'd just psych myself up when I had to have a test or something, say, you can do it, you can do anything. Now I knew I can't do anything, literally. I can't walk out into the parking lot and pick up a car, can I? But I would just tell myself, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And I would push myself and accomplish an amazing amount by that self-reliance. But in the end, I would crash, either health-wise or emotionally, when I didn't succeed as well as I wanted, or I'd continue riding along in that wave of success, but still feeling I need to do more, more, more. If I could get more popular, if I could just be prettier, if I could have better clothes, you never reach the finish line when you're trying to be perfect. Now, looking unto Jesus, Sometimes when a person gets so discouraged by the depression and anxiety cycle, they try so hard, they wake up Sunday morning, all right, I'm going to get all this studying done. They make a list for themselves, all the things they're going to do, but they slept in too late because they were up until 2 o'clock in the morning Saturday night, and their brain's foggy, they can't seem to have devotion, so they go find some 
you know, junk food to eat. Now their brain is even foggier, and they're trying to study, but they're still feeling tired, and they think about this friend, and they wish they could go hang out with that friend for a while. Then they check Facebook, and it's an hour later, and they look at their list of, I was going to have finished all three of these assignments by now. I know none of you can relate to this hypothetical situation, <laughs> right? So then they realize, oh man, I ought to just go get lunch, and then I'll come back and I'll work really hard all afternoon. So they go, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to spend this much time. If I can discipline myself for an hour, then I'll give myself a five-minute break to go down the hall and hang out with my friend. I've done this, okay? I was in college. And then I sort of, at the end of that hour, I go, well, I, I, I guess I kind of, you know, disciplined myself long enough. I'm just going to go five minutes down to Linda's room. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, I've got to get back and study. And, then I come back and study, then I fall asleep, then I feel terrible, now it's five o'clock and I haven't gotten anything done. Okay, that is on the anxiety side. I thought I could do it and I tried really hard and I failed. So then they stay up until midnight trying to get their studying done, but their brain is foggy and they still feel guilty because they promised God they were gonna work really hard. They were gonna make this week a new start and it didn't happen. Then they're likely to swing into the depression side. Maybe just eat a bunch of junk, stay up late. The next morning, they're not going to get up early enough to have their devotions because they stayed up so late. Or when they do have their devotions, they fall asleep praying. They feel bad. Now they swing into the other side. I can't make a new start. And I get to class, and I'm late, and I haven't finished the assignment that's due today, and I forgot to study for this quiz, and they feel terrible. Now they swing to the depression side. Can you see where I'm talking about this? This is how it works in real life. So they swing into the depression side and just go, I, I don't care. I'm just going to go, you know, have a pizza with my friends tonight and not even study. I don't care. So back and forth we swing. When we're struggling with depression, we don't open our Bibles, we open our cell phones. Who can I call? Who's going to make me feel better? Instead of connecting with God, we look for some other relationship, a quick fix to make us feel better about ourselves, to make us feel worthwhile or loved. Or we just go hang out in the dorm lobby and flirt with people. I don't know. Whatever it is that you do, I want you to understand what's at the root of it, because when you get to the root of it, then the dandelion stops coming up over and over in your life, right? So when you're looking unto someone besides Jesus, namely unto yourself, sometimes you'll swing down into apathy, looking directly away from Jesus. You just go, I don't care. I'm just going to you know, try my best, do whatever I need to do. So then when, you, when the Lord doesn't allow you to be in peace in that situation, to live a goalless life, an aimless life, that's not a satisfying life for anybody. So God in his mercy will start you swinging again to where you decide, I've got to try, I've got to do something. Or then you, you'll swing on the de depression side where you realize how desperately you need God. And if you're lucky, you will turn to God instead of to self this time around. But what will push you there will be those feelings of anxiety or depression. So when you feel anxiety or depression, Count it as a blessing. Realize that this is God speaking to your heart, saying, come away with me. Let me satisfy your heart. Let me give you a sense of who I am. Because you see, when you're on the depression side, you need to understand that God loves you enough to do something with you. Don't believe the lie, God himself can't do anything with somebody as messed up as you. It's a lie. The Bible says it's a lie. So don't play with those thoughts or you'll send yourself on a spiral. Instead, see depression as a temptation to not believe that God is who he says he is, that God is all-sufficient and that he will carry you, that he will help you. He doesn't condemn you when you've fallen in the mud puddle, come over there and kick you. You always do this, don't you? That's not Jesus. He says, let me help you up. Let me wash you clean. Do you realize now that you need my righteousness? Let me help you. And he'll help you. 
when you're on the anxiety side, you may not feel a need for God. And God has a remedy for that too. Have you noticed how the Bible is crammed with praise? Where you praise God, praise him for his mercies. I used to think that was a little self-centered of God. You know, I'd look in the Bible and say, why do you want people to be telling you that you're the creator of everything and that you're so wonderful and that you're so holy and that, you know, you already know all that stuff. But God doesn't tell us to praise him because he craves praise more and more. Come on, tell me how good I am. You know, what, would, what kind of mother would I be if I told my children, you know, tell me what a good mother I am. Come on, tell me again. I haven't heard enough of it. God doesn't have us praise him because he needs it, but because we need it. Because when we praise God, when we talk to him about who he is and how mighty he is and how great he is and how he rules the heavens and he keeps the universe in order, it shrinks our problems down to the right size and it shrinks us down to the right size where we realize, wow, I'm really not con in control of very much, am I? But I am in control of my heart. I can choose to surrender it to Christ and then he will work in me to glorify him. I am in control of my attitude. I can choose to turn my face toward Christ or I can turn toward self. So you see, the, the remedy for anxiety and for thinking that I am God, you know, that I can do what only God can do. I can be in control. I can do everything perfectly. I can succeed so thoroughly that everyone will admire me. That we're, I'm going to talk about that in the next presentation, more of specific ways that God wants to deliver us from being controlled by the need to please people. But God wants us to understand he is God. So on the anxiety side, we kind of think that we're God. I'm good enough and I don't need God. On the depression side, we think God himself can't do anything with somebody like me. And both of them are lies of the devil. When you strike at the root of those temptations by pointing your mind at the word of God and saying, I feel this way, Lord, but your word says this, then you bring yourself back into alignment. You point your face at Jesus instead of at yourself, and the rest of your life will start coming into harmony. Now, I want to mention what's the difference between guilt and shame, because this is a crucial area that people struggle with. I've, I've counseled with people who go through these swings so dramatically that I've talked to you about. I remember a girl who, she was so paranoid sometimes about you know, her exercise routine, for example. She'd have to exercise and get her heart rate up to this certain rate. It's got to be at that rate for 20 minutes. That's what research shows it's supposed to be. And she would feel terribly guilty because she was so lazy that day, she only got it up there for three minutes, and then she just decided she didn't want to. So she felt awful. And then, but she'd, she'd make up for it. I won't eat anything that's not good for me. So she'd be vegan. She'd eat the flax meal on her salad. She'd She'd do everything right, drink lots of water, get to bed on time, eat only vegan food, stay away from the oils, do all the right stuff so she could have, you know, check it off the list. I am a good person today. You know, and not only that, but she'd have to have devotions, not just one hour. Sometimes she'd have to make up for, you know, how she hadn't done so well in the past, so it might be two hours of devotions. You see what I'm talking about? It wouldn't take very long in that kind of environment to get really frustrated with religion, would it? This God who stands over you cracking his whip, get up and do it. And the only way you have any kind of peace emotionally is if you can go through your checklist of all the things that you have to do to please him today. And when you've finally gotten to the bottom, yes, and I even finished having two hours of devotions. <sighs> I pleased him for today, but tomorrow's a new day and he's gonna be up there again telling me what I need to do. So she'd go through cycles. 
do well, if you want to call that well, for you know, a week or two, then she'd just plunge. I give up. And she'd eat every trashy piece of food that she could find. You know, eggs and milk and sugar and everything, all at the same time, because you're going to be really bad when you're bad, right? And <laughs> now, other people will do the same kind of thing, but they binge on sex or movies or something else. You know, she wasn't doing those things, but the, the same mindset was controlling her. So the depression would swing her over to the opposite side. Now, what she needed to understand was that looking unto Jesus is the solution. How does looking unto Jesus balance out a person in that situation? Because, of course, when you swing into the depression side and you feel terrible for a while, if you don't commit suicide, you'll swing back to the anxiety side unless you're looking to Jesus. You see, when a person feels guilty, guilt is a message from God. It's a wonderful thing. Guilt is a message from God telling you you've sinned. There's something standing between you and me right here. It's right between us. Let's get it out of the way. I've already paid for it. Let me wash it away with my blood so you and I can be close again. It's a message of hope, right? Guilt is what drives you to your knees to confess your sins because God has promised he will be faithful and just to cleanse you, right? But when you get up from your knees and you still feel bad, is that guilt? It's not a message of hope anymore, is it? Guilt has accomplished what it needs to accomplish in bringing you back into harmony with Christ. When you get up from your knees and you've confessed and you've made everything right and you've surrendered yourself to God, but you get up and you still feel terrible, that's not guilt. That's shame. Shame is a message from the devil that says you are bad. See the difference? Not you've done something bad and it stands between you and me, but you are bad. And there's nothing that God can do to cleanse you completely from this sin. But good news! the devil says. If you just supplement a little bit of the righteousness of Christ with your own filthy rags, I will cleanse you. You will be able to finally win the favor of God back. This is a lie that goes directly to who God is. Does God really stand up there saying, I know, I know, but you fell into sexual sin again, and you know how bad sexual sin is. You know how I hate it. So for this one, you're going to have to work for a while to get close to me again. Is that the way he works? Not at all. Jesus could deal with prostitutes, right? He couldn't deal with Pharisees because Pharisees were all the way over on that anxiety side, that self-reliance side, that pride side, where I don't feel the need of God because I'm pretty jolly good all by myself. So Jesus sends a message of guilt. And when you get up from your knees and you still feel something that feels like guilt, recognize it as a temptation of the devil to doubt what God has said. God says, if you confess your sins... I cleanse you. You become white as snow. Believe that when you get up from your knees and you will find this is the beginning of deliverance from that cycle because here's what I see. A lot of people, they go back and forth in that cycle because when they get up from their knees and they feel terrible still, they go straight into the anxiety side. Well, I still feel awful. I've prayed and prayed for 20 minutes now and asked God to forgive me, but I feel, still feel terrible. Let me see what I can do. And they may start writing notes to the sick or they may go out and do outreach, or they may go and study the Bible, but it's a works-oriented kind of studying the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible for a while, and maybe this will make me feel connected to God again. No, God says, don't believe how you feel. Believe who I say I am. So when God says, I love you with an everlasting love, when I forgive you, I throw your sins into the depths of the sea, believe it. Claim it. That's what he wants you to do. 
He wants you to believe that he is who he says he is, not who you feel he is. Our culture says whatever you feel is real, but that's not true. What God says is real, and what you feel will often d deny you. I mean, it will betray you. It'll be a denial of Christ. So when you feel that God still rejects you or that he's far away from you, but the Bible says God is not far from the repentant sinner, you have to meditate on what God says instead of on what you feel. Look to scripture. Find a verse or a passage or a story of how Jesus treated someone who was in a situation like you and meditate on it. Drink in the lessons of the word. Don't go out and find something to kill the pain. I'm just going to go hang out with some friends for a while. Maybe then I'll feel better and I won't feel so terrible. And sure enough, after a few days of just, you know, trying not to think about it, you may not feel as bad anymore. You may feel like you're accepted by God again. Then you believe it. No, because that will send you spiraling back. I remember talking with a, a Bible worker who had been leading people to Christ for years, and yet she called me in tears and she said, I just feel so awful. I keep falling into pornography and masturbation over and over. How terrible. Here's a girl. I, you know, this is supposed to be a guy problem, but here it's my problem, and I'm leading people to Christ, but the gospel isn't working for me. What could I tell her? I shared with her this. I listened to her. I asked her questions to find out what was at the root of this, and I discovered she'd been sexually abused. And here she was caught in a cycle of shame. You see, shame is where the devil tells you that the blood of Jesus isn't enough to cover your sin, right? You're still dirty no matter how much you repent. And here she was, not even stained by her own sin, but by someone else's sin against her. But she was believing that she was still stained somehow by how someone else had sinned against her. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that nothing that comes into a person can defile them. In other words, nothing that anyone does to you can defile you. But the only thing that can defile you is what comes out from within you. Isn't that what Jesus said to the Pharisees? And then he gives a list of sins. Adultery, lying. These are the things that separate a person from God. But to have someone sin against you cannot defile you. And I shared this with her. And I said, you know, the problem that, that you're experiencing is that when you get down on your knees and you confess your sin, you're confessing the wrong sin. You confess, Lord, I've fallen into pornography again. I know I've made it a few weeks, but here I am again, and I always do this. Lord, I've fallen into masturbation again. I feel so awful, but here I am. But you, when you've finished praying, and you get up from your knees, and you still feel bad, and you have this lingering sense of shame that just permeates your whole life because of your abuse, making you feel like, you know, a good guy wouldn't want somebody like me anyway, right? Because I'm tainted, I'm stained, someone else has done this with me, I'm, I'm not pure anymore. But that's not what the, what the Bible says, is it? And I said, you need to not just confess the, the fruit sins that you've had, the fruit sins of pornography and masturbation, but confess the root sin of unbelief, that when you got up from your knees and you had confessed your sins, you'd given your life to Christ, you doubted what he said. You've, you've committed the sin of unbelief. Unbelief is when you doubt that God is who he says he is, that he does what he says he does. So now, confess your sin of unbelief and thank God for this wonderful gift of his robe of righteousness that you cannot earn and that you don't deserve, but that he freely gives. Thank him, confess your sin of unbelief that you didn't believe that he could really cleanse you, and now you'll find freedom. And you know, that was a turning point for her. Not that she was never tempted again to fall into fantasy and lust, but now she knew that she was cleansed, that when she gave her life to Christ, she was washed white as snow right then. And she was grateful for the grace of God in a new way.
You see, shame will send you right back onto that cycle because you'll feel you've got to supplement the grace of God some way. And then you'll keep trying more and more. I, can't, I don't quite feel peace yet, but I think if I try a little harder, I'll get there. Then when you can't, you'll swing to the other side and you'll keep going back and forth. Look to Jesus. That's the simple way that you find freedom from these cycles. You see, many people never feel like they're good enough for Christ. But the Bible doesn't say that. The book Inside Out says, uh, page 101, the person who manages to deny his pain behind a facade of togetherness is dangerously vulnerable to developing compulsively sinful habits. Because he's not dealing a death blow to the wrong strategies that block his enjoyment of the Lord. The unrecognized and largely unfelt ache in his soul still demands relief. He's ripe for being hooked. You see, God wants you to understand how much you're worth. This picture is of the Hope Diamond. It's worth an estimated 200 to 250 million dollars. Do you know how much money that is? Who says that it's worth that? The owner, yeah, there you go. But <laughs> you can say anything if you're the owner. What, the way they estimate that is how much would people be willing to pay for that? So if there's somebody out there that's willing to pay $250 million for it, that's what they say it's worth. Now, if I go to a yard sale and I find a little junky figurine, but on the bottom it says Tiffany, and I go, wow, this is, you know, this is from the real thing, you know, the Tiffany whatever place where they sell stuff. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Somebody else may be willing to pay $20,000 for that. And I'll be happy to pay 10 cents for that in order to get the $20,000. But it isn't worth any $20,000 to me. If I find it sitting on the shelf in my kid's room, I'm likely to chuck it in the trash can, right? Because I'm sick of little figurines sitting around gathering dust. But that's me. Somebody else values it. And that is the measure of its worth. How much are you worth? You're worth what somebody paid for you. And when you feel that blanket of depression enveloping you, wanting you to just, you know, come curl up in the corner and be wrapped in depression. This is the way that you'll make yourself feel better. Just get absorbed in these feelings. The world will tell you that's what you've got to do. Go feel it. Well, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel and go through the grieving process if you've been through something terrible. But don't wrap yourself in this sense of, I'm not worth anything. Nobody loves me. You see, the Bible tells us what is the foundation of our lovability and worth. We are worth so much that the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. Our worth is estimated in light of the price that was paid for us on the cross. And in creation and redemption, God has shown how much we're worth. He created us in his image. And when we rebelled against him, just the fact that he had breathed the breath of life into that ball of mud, the mud that he just made, somehow that ball of mud went from being a ball of mud that he could make more of to being someone that he would give up ruling the universe to rescue. That's the measure of your worth. As you meditate on the lessons of creation and redemption, you'll find freedom from these cycles. You'll find out how much you're loved and how much you're worth. God has created us with those two great longings in our hearts, to be loved and to be worthwhile. Security and significance, however you say it, these are the two great longings that God promises to fulfill. And when you let him fulfill those two great longings, you bind your heart around him like a vine that wraps itself around something. You'll never let him go because he is the foundation of who you are. That's how God wants us to think. In that way, depression and anxiety can be pressures that press us closer to Christ. When I start feeling self-confident, I say, Lord, help me. I need to spend 10 minutes 
just praising you, talking to you about how great you are and how small I am, how you make every vein and every leaf, and you rule the universe, and I don't need to try to take the steering wheel of my life. I can trust you to take the steering wheel of my life. I don't even have to have the GPS and tell you, Lord, just let me tell you where to take my life. No, we don't have to do that. We trust him, and we give ourselves to him. Depression, A Stubborn Darkness, page 31, which is an excellent book for those who are struggling with depression, says, if depressed persons assume that their problem is fundamentally medical, asking them to look at their relationships or their basic beliefs about God will seem as useful as prescribing physical exercise for baldness. Right? That's why you take an antidepressant if you're depressed, right? I'm not all against antidepressants. Sometimes it's, it's like a painkiller in surgery. You need a little something to pull you up out of the ditch, but the m big problem I have with antidepressants is that people will take them, and then when they don't feel bad anymore, they don't deal with the root issues that were driving them there. And then it gets worse. It's like if you take a painkiller when you've got an infection in your bone. Is that gonna fix it? No, it masks the symptoms while the infection gets worse and worse. That's what you don't want. So God wants to cleanse us from the inside out. You know, I once had a bone infection in my foot that it hurt terribly but I couldn't persuade my dad to take me to the doctor because my foot looked fine. I was like, Dad, please, it hurts so badly. Please, you've got to take me to the doctor. Nah, that's not pain. You don't know what pain is. <laughs> I finally got to the doctor, and the doctor took one look at me and said, you were in the hospital. You could lose that foot. I had to spend two days in the hospital to be able to deal with that bone infection, and still the, the infection was with me the next year until I ended up having appendicitis and getting in the hospital, and the next dose of antibiotics finally killed the infection in my bone too. <laughs> Wonderful. When you don't see outward symptoms, it's easy to think there's no problem. But that's not true. God is always after the heart. He always wants to reach your heart. So depression or anxiety are pressures that God allows you to go through in order to press you back to himself. See, when you hang on to the hand of Christ and say, I will not let thee go except thou bless me, all the pressure the devil puts on you will just press you closer to Christ. This is how we gain the strength that we need to be overcomers, to make it through the time of trouble, right? Don't fall for the lies that God is not powerful enough to deliver you, that God is not loving enough to care about you. Don't fall for the lies that you can handle things pretty well all by yourself. You know, God, I'll call on you if I need some help, because those will get you into a cycle of destruction. Instead, when you're depressed or anxious, Turn your eyes to Christ. Meditate on God, on who he is. Not on yourself, not on your feelings. Don't try to reason with anxiety or depression. You know, make a list of your blessings. Well, see, all these nice things. It's great to praise God for your blessings, but you're not going to fix anything by saying, look how pretty I am. I have lots of friends. It doesn't matter that that guy doesn't like me or that that girl <laughs> doesn't like me. You know what I mean? You're not going to fix anything by doing that. You're sticking a Band-Aid over something that needs an antibiotic. Prayerfully surrender and ask God what is at the root of those feelings. Because often, this is something that's festering. You know, there's something down under the surface. Maybe you've been relying on how beautiful you are, or how popular you are, or what good grades you have, or how good you are at playing the piano or something. When you feel down, that's what you turn to. But God, look, I'm, I have all these things going for me. I'm not a bad person. Look how I go to church and read my Bible and drink enough water, whatever it is that you rely on that makes you feel good about yourself. It's not going to be enough. And if you have this nagging sense that there's something that's not right, maybe you need to sit down with the Word of God and say, Lord, what is it that's at the heart of this? Is there a splinter that needs to be pulled out? Something 
that sin has still got a stronghold in my life and you want to help me to understand how you want to set me free from unbiblical ways of thinking. Refuse to cherish Satan's lies. Rebuke them with the word of God, not by deciding, I'm just going to think happy thoughts. I'm going to put on Christian music and not think about it, not think about it, not think about it. Happy, happy. No, those are great strategies, but it won't go to the root if there's a sin issue lingering in your heart. So you need to say, Lord, is there some way that I'm not embracing who you are? You say you're like this, but I feel you're like this. Help me to understand how you are who you say you are instead of who I feel you are. The Ministry of Healing says, Nothing tends more to promote health of body and of soul than does a spirit of gratitude and praise. It is a positive duty to resist melancholy, discontented thoughts and feelings, as much a duty as it is to pray. Ministry of Healing, page 251. And you know, the Bible says in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That's a simple recipe for you if you're ever struggling. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you want that peace? Then remember, all suffering is intended to train us to fix our eyes on the true God. Therefore, depression, or anxiety I would say, regardless of the causes, is a time to answer the deepest and most important of all questions. Whom will I trust? Whom will I worship? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your word sets us free from the prisons of Satan. And I pray that every person who listens to this message will be blessed by your word and drawn close to you. Help them to break free from the strongholds and to walk in newness of life. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.